Hello, everyone, and we are here with a new podcast with My Energy Game. This one is going to be about leadership in football. And who best to speak about leadership than expert in leadership and change and education, Richard Gerber. How are you, Richard? Oh, Edu, I'm fine. It's great to be with you all again. Oh, How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you so much. I mean, obviously, you are one of the experts in our uh, program. Um, we love you. Um, and obviously, when we, the other day, when we were talking about leadership and football, and we were talking about the European Super League, and we were talking about, obviously, the changes that may come to the Champions League and the Premier League and the FA Cup, and there, were, there was a lot around leadership. So what are your views? I mean, I think it's a really interesting time to be talking about leadership in football, um, particularly after what we've seen with the European Super League, with the conversations about the future of the Champions League, whether, it, you know, and, and even the most important part of those conversations, which really need to be had urgently around the structure and funding of grassroots football, right? Not at the, the highest level, but what I think is really interesting is, and this isn't just unique to football, Edu, this is about leadership everywhere, but I think it's certainly something that football is struggling with at the highest level right now, and that is authenticity. You know, what we've seen over the last few months with the protests around particularly the European Super League and the conversations going on at the top table of world football is the incredible apparent disconnect between some of these owners of some of these massive clubs and their communities. You know, the truth is the game is going to have to change and, and it always has. And the reason why football continues to be the world's most popular game is because it has evolved generation after generation after generation. You know, the other day, when we were talking and, you know, I make no secret of the fact that as a child, I was raised as an Arsenal supporter. You know, the, <laughs> it wasn't, you know, like most people, you, you don't choose your football team. You grow into whichever football team your family is linked to. Right. And for me, it was Arsenal. And I remember going to my first game at Highbury in the season after Arsenal won the double in 1971. I was three years old. Uh, and it was my first experience of going to a big live football game. And this is what I mean, you know, in those days, football was a very different animal, right? It was a long, long time before the Premier League. It was a long time before the kind of money came into the game, even at the highest level, which, of course, at that time, Arsenal were. Um, players were still part of their communities, right? So, you know, after the game, you would probably go into a local pub, obviously at three years old, it wasn't something I was allowed to do at the time, but you'd go into a local- I so, Richard. Yeah, well, you know, my dad was responsible. We used to go for fish and chips, to be honest. But at the end of the game, you know, you'd go into a local pub around the Highbury area and the players would, would roll in and they'd be part of the community. You know, they were paid well, but they weren't paid the kind of, they weren't divorced. The owners were very much, you know, the Arsenal Football Club, for example, I think was owned pretty much by the same family for generations, right? And they were part of the community. They were North West London people. Um, 
And so the club was rooted in its community. And not, most of the players were British. A lot of the players had come through the environment of, of London and, and the surrounding area. Um, so the point is the club was deeply authentic and rooted in its community, right? All the decisions at the time were made for the community. The players wore the shirt with pride because they loved the badge. The fans, you know, saved up every week their wages and went along. And the thing was, again, in those days, normal people could afford to go to a football match, right? Because you'd go and pay to stand on the terraces and it would be easily within the uh, affordability of the working woman or the working man. So, we had a level of authenticity. And then, of course, football has had to evolve. You know, it became the incredible product of the uh, late 20th and early 21st century. You know, money came into the game. It became even more spectacular. You know, we've now got the world's greatest players playing in the Premier League, in Europe, across the world. Um, these stadia are, they're like cathedrals, right? They're like cathedrals of sport. And there is something magical, the television coverage. You know, people may not be old enough to remember, but when I was a young child, there was no live football on television. You know, the only live football was the FA Cup final or, you know, the World Cup. It's why they were such spectacular, exciting occasions because there was, now we have access to football all over the world on our television screens every day of the week. So the progress is not a bad thing. That's what I'm trying to say. But what is unfortunate is as the game has grown, as money has got involved in the game, as particularly the top clubs have gone into the ownership of people outside of their communities and their environment. Um, you know, a some of these big clubs have lost their authenticity. They're no longer rooted in their communities. And in a way, I think the, the, the leadership problems around things like the ESL have, have really illustrated that in a very powerful way, because these owners were making decisions based on what they felt was right for the financial future of football and for their own businesses, which everyone is entitled to do, right? If you run a business, you make your decisions based on what's best for your business. And that's what these people were doing. The problem, of course, was they have become huge redwood trees, you know, like the ones in, in uh, California, these vast, vast hundred feet tall trees. But the problem is their roots have shrunk. So every time now there's a major storm, the trees are in danger of toppling over. And I think really for me, the great challenge for leadership in football and particularly at the highest level is we've got to find a way to reconnect the trees to the roots so that we create a real stability which is built around authenticity that's interesting i mean because obviously when we've uh, in the last month when we've had this news about the european super league a lot has been said and of course we have our views and we are all entitled of our views me as an sports person i didn't like the idea of obviously not earning your your chance to promote relegate win you know i mean it has to mean something for me, when myself and my players and all members of the staff cross that line, we want to compete and we want to earn it. And when we cross that line back into the changing room, I want to feel that, you know, we did fight for something there. And that's what the sport is all about, in my opinion. And then obviously the synergy and the energy with the fans and the people and the community, as you just said. But having said that, 
let's not be hypocritic. I mean, the super, the European Super League was as eager to make money as it is UEFA and FIFA and the Premier League in, in extent. And it's all a business and the media and the community, which again is brilliant and I embrace it and I love it. And I, but again, as you say, is about authenticity. So Richard, um, what do we need to do then? Or what's your view in terms of to embrace all of this, which we are, we've already said, both of us, that we agree, that we embrace technology, we embrace the media, we embrace the business, we embrace all of that. There's nothing wrong with that. There is nothing, nothing wrong with change and evolution. But where do we need to say no up to this point? Otherwise, then the leadership in football is going to actually kill football rather than embrace all of this and evolve it uh, for the better and to keep it and to safeguard it. Well, I, I mean, it's a really interesting question. You're right. This, this is the point. You know, we were both saying we have football has to evolve. It will have to continue to evolve as the world turns. Um, and, you know, let's not, by the way, let's not underestimate the impact that COVID has had on football at all levels and why there's been such a drastic acceleration in the need to transform the game. But, you know, if we step away from football just for a minute and we reflect on any business, Edu, one of the things that is really interesting in, in the business world, particularly within the service industry sector, is if a company forgets about its customers and focuses too much introspectively on its own brand and development, it eventually wakes up and finds its customers have gone elsewhere. And we need to remember that a business is only ever as good as its clients and customers, right? You need to have clients and customers that buy into your brand, buy into wanting to be part of that community. You know, whether it's a tech firm, look at, you know, why were Apple so incredibly successful under the, the lifetime of, of Steve Jobs? Because people didn't just buy the products, they bought into the lifestyle, right? They wanted to be, because being part of Apple, owning an Apple phone or an iPad said something about who that person was. And so, so customer identity is really important. And that is always what has been at the heart of football, right? And in a way, that's the point. You know, when we saw the protests over recent weeks around the ESL from fans, it wasn't that, that fans didn't want to e evolve or their clubs to evolve. You're absolutely right, by the way. I don't think it's just sports people who were really resentful of the idea that it was a closed shop, right? Whether no yeah. matter how good or bad you were, you were safe. And actually the greatest joy as a supporter of watching any form of sport is the fact that your team could win, lose or draw, right? Yeah. And it's and that, that, is, that free is the magic. Song. And that is the magic, isn't it? It's the free son of the fact that you can win, lose or draw in any moment, right? And, and as a fan, I don't want to go to uh, watch my team play a season knowing that even if they finish bottom, it doesn't matter. Um, the jeopardy, the jeopardy is what matters, right? But the really interesting thing for me is that fans need to be consulted. You know, I think this idea, this model of creating a level of fan ownership or even a shadow board made up of, of fans. You know, when we were talking the other day about devising this podcast, I was talking a little bit about county cricket in England, uh -huh. where, you know, the professional cricket league in England, which is, if you like, in essence, England's summer sport, 
or you know used to be a great national institution the counties who are the first class teams in in other words the equivalent to the top level of of english football are actually members clubs so they aren't private companies they're not owned by individuals they can't be they're owned in essence by the the fans the supporters the members and the board um, is elected and governs on their behalf. Now, in reality, we can't do that in football. Football is far too big a beast, far too big an animal. But what that does do is it creates a connection between members and the club. It means that decisions are always taken through what matters to us, to our brand, to our supporters, to our clients, to our customers. So very rarely will a cricket club make the wrong decision that jars with members because they're in consultation. And I think what we see in football is there are some great clubs out there that still do that. You know, again, we're recording this two days after the FA Cup final where Leicester won their first ever FA Cup. And we both remarked on the incredible emotions um, of the supporters, the players, the connection to the owner, um, the, the incredible emotion back in Leicester of, of like a whole city feeling that they've been part of what's gone on. And I think that's where the magic of football is won. And I think we've got to find a way to ensure that, that supporters do not feel disconnected from their clubs any longer. And therefore, great leadership will always be really cognizant of that. We'll always have the courage to consult properly with supporters. And that remember, the ripples of the decisions they make ultimately will feed down to the people that turn up at the turnstiles. And what we need are any successful organization going back to the Apple model. Model. We need fans and supporters to truly believe they are part of the movement, not separate to the movement. And of course, we're seeing that kind of leadership in really well-run community clubs at every level, um, including in the Premier League. You know, whether it's a club like Leicester, um, whether it's a club like Crystal Palace or, or Everton, or even to an extent, to an extent, Liverpool, right? But what we need is to find a way to reconnect the giants of football, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Manchester City, Chelsea. They've got to be much tight, more tightly wrapped to the fans and supporters. So fans and supporters feel that they have a real active voice. Absolutely. And that's why when we've been having these conversations, and I want to highlight that it's not about oh, we don't want this to evolve, or we don't want this to change. No, not at all. I mean, I mean, you are an expert and a leader in change. So, um, so you embrace change every day. And the conversations I have with you are so refreshing because you are always encouraging me to actually create some change within my training sessions, within the way I talk to my players and so on. So it's, but it's about how you do it. It's about why you do it. So... Yes, let's make sure the football evolves. Let's make sure the football stays the biggest sport ever. But we shouldn't forget that it's about the fans, it's about the supporters, it's about that link, that energy between players, the leadership management, the fans, the community. So you are right. I mean, I think Leicester right now have got it quite okay, quite good, to be fair with them. Um, I like 
um, obviously Klopp. I think he's created that kind of like that sense of energy and he has really bought into the community. He has really bought into the ethos of Liverpool and the city, the working class and so on. So is this the way forward? Is this the answer? Much more than how the competition should look like and who should be stimulating it and who should be running it. Because let's be clear, whoever is ending, ending running any of the competitions is going to be there also for business reasons and is going to try to generate money. That's never going to change. That is not the problem as such. The problem is the ethos, the whys and the hows. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right, Edu. And you've struck on the thing that really, really matters in all of this. You know, organizational leaders and particularly organizational leaders of massive organizations, which, which top level football clubs are today, massive organizations, right? Will always fail when they disconnect on a human level where everything is just strategy and systems first. I mean, I don't know if I remember talking about this on a previous podcast, and I apologize if I do, but it's worth underlining to people. When I had the chance to interview Barack Obama a few years ago, um, you know, the, the one thing I said to him was, what is the most important thing you learned during your eight years in the White House? Now, you know, when we just step back from that a minute, no matter how big any private company is or how big any private football club is, Barack Obama was the chief executive of USA PLC, right? <laughs> he was the chief executive of the biggest, arguably, organization in the world. And what he said, I think, is really relevant here because he said, you know, it's really interesting, Richard, when I first took on the presidency, he said, I surrounded myself with the greatest technical minds on earth. I had the greatest economists, the greatest scientists, the greatest political strategists, right? He said, but what I realized when I look back on my eight years in the White House is that virtually none of the problems that crossed my desk were technical by nature primarily. When you strip back those problems, what you realize is they were almost all virtually human. They were about love, anger, jealousy, greed, tribalism, fear. He said, and the problem is all too often, our first reflex is default to find a technical solution where really we need to take a step back and understand the human challenge first. And in many ways for me, that's become the, the challenge in football, right? We've got too many big people at the very top of the game. And the ESL is the perfect example where a model, a technical model was created before anyone had really taken the time to understand the human challenge. And what happened as a result of the fallout of that was the humans who felt they'd been ignored suddenly rose up. And if there is one fundamental rule to how to activate change successfully in an organization, it's this. When change is done to you, when you feel you have no power, when you feel you're being you're just reacting to the change that's happening to you, you become resentful, angry, and resistant, right? The way that change works best in an organization is that when every stakeholder, everybody in that organization believes they're an active participant in the process, that they have an opportunity to have a voice, to see the design of the future reflected in the way they feel about it. And in a way, that's the problem that we've seen in football, right? These owners have disconnected, the roots have gone, and 
the the members the supporters the stakeholders have felt have become feel that they are totally disconnected from the process and therefore they become resentful and angry because at best they then expected just to react and to fall into line and so if we can find a way to create a proactive process where every stakeholder feels involved, where the leaders truly understand the human challenge, then we can create sustainable businesses where nobody loses out. And actually, these clubs become even more powerful because they have such deep roots in their communities. I love that. I mean, Richard, I could be talking to you like for another five, six, seven hours, of course, probably not with a pine um, rather than virtually. But yes, I agree 100%. I mean, it's not about not having leaders in football. It's not about not having a business model. It's not about not embracing uh, the media, the technology, the, you know, the finances. It's about doing it as humans. It's about being a bit more sincere. It's about being more humble. It's about the ethos of the game. I mean, I don't know you, Richard, but if I do love football, and if I've been playing and coaching football since I was two or three years old, since I remember, it's because I'd really, really thrive through the ethos of the sport, that humility, that, that fight, that, that kind of like understanding of your values, understanding of the opponent, trying to better yourself in a daily basis, trying... That is what the sport is all about. That is the energy. And we shouldn't forget that, right? Yeah, well, when, when you think about it, Edu, right? If you think about this, what makes the greatest coaches the greatest coaches? Let's, I mean, let's take, um, let's take Klopp and Guardiola, who are two very different people, right? But hot, hot, world-class, top, some of the best ever, right? What you said, which is really interesting about Klopp, is Klopp really understands the working class community and catchment of Liverpool. So when he's speaking, when he speaks to the fans after a game or before the game, you know, through the vehicle of the media, fans love him because he's speaking their language. Yeah. So what, the, what, what have we learned about leadership from Klopp? That he listens. And it's one of the, be the piece of advice I give any leader or any aspiring leader. The most important quality you can have is a leader is the ability to listen. It goes back to Barack Obama's point. You have to understand the human condition in order to pitch back in a way that people feel included. Guardiola is the same. Now, in a way, what, what marks Guardiola out is he doesn't just coach his team his way. He is forensic about listening to what the opposition are doing, watching what the opposition are doing, learning about the capacities of his players, and then taking each player aside and saying, right, this is what I've learned from listening and watching. This is what I need you to do based on who I know you are, right? So the greatest coaches listen first. They understand the context. They understand the uniqueness of each player that they're working with they understand the context they're moving into and they create they are world-class communicators and just to, to finish off this point right another u.s president in history abraham lincoln probably the most one of the most famous speeches ever given was the gettysburg address right where it's gone his moment where he was addressing the the americans to see a new vision um post civil war for america 
and it's gone down in history as one of the greatest pieces of oratory ever. And somebody, after he gave the speech, asked him how he'd managed to find the right words to galvanize a nation. And by the way, the Gettysburg Address was only three minutes long, right? It wasn't a 20 minute, half an hour soaring piece of oratory. It was three minutes long, which is about 400 words, right? And he said, well, it's easy because what I did for the two weeks before I gave the address was I went around speaking to the troops and people I was going to be speaking to and just listened. I listened to their concerns, the things they wanted to hear, the things that made their hearts beat faster. So that when I stood there and gave the address, I knew how to sculpt what I wanted to happen in a language that those people would understand and feel connected to. That is the art of leadership at any level. I love that. I mean, and it's funny that you've just said that because one of my favorite quotes is, um, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. And that's probably, that is probably uh, one of the issues, right, in leadership in football, that when people feel that power, they forget their human side and they forget their customers over greatest asset in football, the funds. Richard, brilliant having you with us. As I said, I would be the whole day talking to you, but I know that you are busy, you've got other things to do. But listen, thank you very much for your time and we'll see you soon. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Edu. Take care, stay safe and see you soon. You too, Richard. Thank you.